there are times that those two words, thank you, are woefully inadequate. And I feel that they are woefully inadequate this morning. I want to say to this church, thank you. Thank you for your foresight. Thank you for all the planning, all the preparation, all the investment of so many of the resources God has blessed you with to provide this opportunity for us to gather together and grow, to become better equipped. I want to be very frank with you. I did not come here so much as a participant, as a giver. I came more as a needy receiver. It's been a blessing to be here. It is so easy sometimes for those of us who serve the Lord as ministers or preachers, become so occupied with our ministries that we do not tend as we ought to to our personal relationship with the Lord. This workshop has really blessed me to help me to renew my efforts to grow closer to the Lord. That said, I don't think I will ever forgive Hiram and Neil for assigning me this topic for this occasion. When they suggested this assignment, I thought, how in the world could you possibly address this subject adequately in a Sunday morning worship setting? This sounds more like the theme for a workshop that could last a few days. And so I frankly, again, honestly, really struggled with what in the world should I do to address a topic like this. Some of us preachers are much more inclined to just desire a passage. Give me a passage. Give me a section of scripture. Because a lot of things are already determined at that point. And then you delve into the text. But things of a topical nature, at least for me, are far more of a struggle. But I do appreciate the challenge that this has presented me in preparation Faith is meant to be lived. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 says, and we walk by faith. It's not just something we feel. It's not something that's merely evidenced by a baptismal certificate or our church attendance record. Faith is meant to be lived. But to live our faith can be a real challenge. When you look at passages like 1 John 5 and verse 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And then you read a passage like 1 Peter chapter 5, and we read about that roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. That was true in the first century when those words were written. And that same reality is what we experience in the 21st century as well. It is a hard thing. It is a challenging thing to live our faith in any century of human existence. But we are the ones who are living in the 21st century. 
Some of us who have a little bit of age on us have reflected back over the decades and have realized that we live in an age of lowered standards. Have you noticed this? Some of you who are younger maybe will need to do some Googling about some of these things. But we live in a culture right now that is a culture that is typically, characteristically, lowering standards. Admission into medical schools, the standard has been lowered. There is a tremendous stress with our military in regard to their recruiting people into service, and as a result of that, there's a struggle with the lowering of the standards to get into the military. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in regard to how we clothe ourselves in public, the standards have been lowered. Have you been to Walmart lately? Especially between the hours of 6 in the morning to 8, or maybe after 10 o'clock. It's obvious the standards have been lowered. Well, I think we're naive if we would think that we're not affected by the culture that we live in. And I want to suggest to you that the church has been affected by our existence in our present time of living in a culture where the standards have been lowered. One of the first times that this was brought to my awareness was when I ran across in a used bookstore this book written by James Montgomery Boyce. It's called Christ's Call to Discipleship. And basically the thesis, the emphasis of this book, and I think he does prove his case, that what has happened is we have watered down discipleship to the point where it bears little semblance to the discipleship discussed and the discipleship written about in the first century. We've lowered the standards. I think what is true of discipleship can be said of Christianity, religion, and even living our faith. And so I got to thinking about this particular subject, living a first century faith in the 21st century. And in light of the fact that we've been spending time in the book of James, I thought of two ways I could do this. I could just open that section of that first century document, the New Testament, go to the book of James that I could stand here and read beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1 to the end. Because it's about living our faith, no matter when we're living. This particular book is a beautiful book to address as we have addressed it because as somebody has suggested it is like a gospel of common sense uh, I have a book in my library about the book of James and it's called Practical Christianity one of the books I bought when I was a student at Fried Hardeman was a book written by one of our brothers in the Lord what Christian living is all about and it's a devotional commentary on the book of James the book of James is all about living our faith. We just happen to be the ones in the 21st century 
challenged to do that. But I want to remind us that we're not just challenged in finding that a stress and difficulty because we live in a world where there's a lot of temptation and a lot of sin. There's always a lot of random, inexplicable things that are happening in our world, too, that are trials that make it hard to live the faith, too. Sometimes there is such a traumatic effect by the things that we experience in our life that we find ourselves struggling with our faith. It can be the loss of our health. It could be the loss of our marriage by divorce. It could be the loss of a child or a grandchild to Satan or to the world. It could be the loss of a physical limb. It could be the loss of our finances or a business that we've invested heavily in for many years in our life. Because of the temptations and the sin, and because of the trials that we struggle with in our life, living our faith is an extremely difficult thing to do. This particular book basically talks to us, explains to us, communicates to us from heaven about this is right religion. This is real faith here. Not the watered down faith or religion of the 21st century, but this is the first century faith. I just want to have us take a look at a couple of passages this morning that might help us remind ourselves about what living this faith of the first century is all about. And it begins with a humility of heart. In chapter 4 and verse 6 of the book of James, there is a proverb that's quoted from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In my reading of the Bible, one of the things that is really obvious to me is the fact that pride is one of the worst things that we can permit grow in our heart. Because of that pride, our lives are thwarted in regard to our spiritual growth. God resists the proud. Do you want to walk with the Lord? Do you want to be near with the Lord? You can't do that with a prideful heart. I appreciate the observation of RVG Tasker in the Tyndale Commentaries. When he makes the observation that submission to God and the possession of a truly humble spirit, in fact, cannot be separated. Humility that submits to God. It is what gives us the opportunity to be close to him. And after saying, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, he says, therefore, submit to God. We submit to God out of a spirit of humility. Submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Whenever we have a humble spirit and we realize our desperation 
and our deep need for God, we begin then with that humble spirit to submit to him and seek him in our life. We live in a world where it seems like the vast majority of people don't have much of an interest in that. So that makes us misfits in the 21st century. That we would choose humility over pride. And we would choose to think, not that I've got this, but that God's got this. And it's going to be okay eventually because God's got this and I've got God. But we live in a world where many people choose the pride. They're going to do it just like we've suggested this weekend. The Burger King way. The way they want to do it. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. I have a very probing question I want to ask all of us this morning. How close are you to the Lord? How tight is that relationship? You know, there are people with whom we're closer to than other people. How close are you to the Lord? One thing I think that made David a man after God's own heart was how much he wanted to be with the Lord. He wanted to be close to the Lord. Psalm 27 really depicts this spirit of David. And one of the things that I think is so impressive about David is this statement he makes in verse 4 of Psalm 27. He says, one thing I have desired of the Lord. Are you kidding me? Only one? Only one thing? And that's the way he's looking at his life. There's one thing that I desire of the Lord. What in the world could that possibly be? If there's one thing that you wanted from the Lord, what would it be? How would you fill in that blank check? Look at the heart and look at the spirit of David. One thing I've desired of the Lord that I will seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In a poetic way, he's talking about his longing to be in the presence of the Lord. Wanting to be with the Lord. He wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants to behold the beauty of the Lord. He wants to inquire in his temple. He wants to be with the Lord. Later on in that same psalm, in verse 8, he says, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. And so he pleads with God later in the psalm, then in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. What we desire is what we seek. That's what the way we roll as human beings. What we desire, we seek. What do you desire? What do I desire in my life? This man after God's own heart said there was only one thing that he desired in regard to the Lord. And that's that he wanted to be with the Lord. There was a widow lady that I worked with in Hartville, Ohio, who after her husband passed away, she moved out to Phoenix, Arizona. And after going out to Phoenix, Arizona, she 
ran into this guy, Edwin White, who was a preacher out there for many years. And he wrote a book called A Sense of Presence. And in that book, there's this quote. Miss Robbie Meadows sent me a copy of this book at really the perfect time in my life. One of those times when I'd become very distracted by church work and not putting much emphasis on my relationship with the Lord. And in that book, there's this quote. It's as if it could be written by David. When we reduce life to its essentials, only one thing is necessary. Can you imagine anybody taking pen in hand or sitting down at a keyboard and typing those words to reduce life to its essentials? He says, when we reduce life to its essentials, only one thing is needful to have God. The noblest use of life is to spend it in the pursuit of a further knowledge of God. To use our lives in this way is to embark on a journey to find the answer to Job's question. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. It's to begin an exciting quest that provides a lifetime of spiritual adventure. Those who pursue divine presence may or may not have quantity of years, but they will have quality of days. If we live for this life only, for its frills and fluff, for the parting pleasures and fleeting joys, then inevitably we will someday become frustrated with a life that hardly seems worth the price that we have paid to live it. Life spent in pursuit of baubles and bubbles ends in bitter disappointment. Baubles tarnish, bubbles burst. When we reduce life to its essentials, only one thing is needful to have God. To have God, we must have humility and choose to seek him. And the Bible tells us in the book of James that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So how close are we to the Lord this morning? We're as close as we've chosen to be in our life. That's the answer to the question. How close have you chosen to be with the Lord? He wants intimacy. But yet we can deprive him of that intimacy by our choice to keep him at arm's length with a little pride or maybe even a lot of pride. I think that passage really helps us to appreciate what it really means to live a first century faith in the 21st century. It requires humility of spirit. It requires a choice to be submissive to God in every aspect of our life. I mean, how we worship, how we conduct ourselves in our homes, how we treat our spouses, how we treat other people generally, how we function in the community whenever we're out shopping, when we're behind the wheel of a car, and when we go to work. Living our faith affects every aspect of our life and every part of who we are and what we do. A second section of the book of James that I think really is enlightening in regard to the subject of living this faith is in James chapter 1. It's with that meekness of spirit we receive the implanted word. Verse 21 says, laying aside all 
filthiness and overflow of wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, there's a problem with us human beings. We are inclined to permit ourselves to be deceived. Twice, deception is mentioned here at the end of chapter 1. Verse 22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, living a faith of the first century isn't just about proclaiming our faith or claiming faith verbally. It's about living it. It's about what we do, what we say. And then there is this passage in verse 26 and 27. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, there's that deception again, deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. See, not all religion is useful. We human beings have the ability to ruin what God has created. We can do that in regard to the concept of faith, Christianity, religion. Verse 27 says this is how it ought to be. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If there's pure and undefiled religion, that implies that there's also impure and defiled religion. And we're not talking about a man's opinion here. We're talking about how the Lord looks at something. I was on Van Drive in Jackson, Tennessee one day, and I was listening to the radio, and it was at a time in my life when the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to listen to music, because a lot of it is romantic in nature, and I'd lost my wife. And so I got hooked on news talk radio. And there was this guy who was preaching on the radio. I have no idea what his name was and don't know what church affiliation he had, but he made this observation. He said, wisdom is when we see something the way God sees it. What a powerful observation. When we see faith, when we see religion, when we see Christianity the way God sees it, we have wisdom about that subject. Well, how does God see this? This right religion, this pure and undefiled religion before him. It is about passionately serving God. The reason why I know that is because it says at the end of verse 27, keep on keeping yourselves, that's the idea of the verb there, keep on keeping yourselves unspotted from the world. Well, we live in a sinful world. We live in an ungodly world. There's temptation and sin all over the place. We have got to be passionately pursuing God to be able to be endeavoring to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. See, living our faith is about, among other things, and maybe most importantly, passionately serving God, passionately pursuing God, passionately pursuing an intimacy with God, a closeness and a nearness in our relationship with God. That's the most important thing in living our faith in any culture, any century. But then there's also something else. Caring for people. Treating other people right. So many times as you read through the book of James, as it's been proven since Thursday night here 
at this building. So many times in the book of James, James instructs us, if we have faith, here's the way we treat other people. And he cites two kinds of people in this passage who had difficult life circumstances. One of them is orphans and the other is widows. They both have uniquely difficult life challenges because of their life circumstances. What should we do in regard to people who are struggling in their lives? If we are passionately pursuing God, what is going to be the natural inclination in regard to hurting people in our world? We minister to them. We serve them. The word visit there, if you were to see the Greek word for that word that's translated visit, and then you were to see the Greek word that's translated bishop, you'd look at those and th think, those are kissing cousin words. Those, have, those sure look similar, and they do because... The visiting there is talking about overseeing and inspecting a situation with the intent of trying to minister to the needs, the things that are not right in that situation. Helping hurting people. Passionately pursuing God and having a deep compassion for other people. Now part of our problem is in our century, in our country, we've been living a charmed life. We don't have a clue about how difficult some people's lives are. We used to call them orphans' homes. Back in the 50s and the 60s of the previous century, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not it was okay for us to have orphans' homes. Now they're called children's homes. There's one in this very community. Do you know what happens in kids' lives, unlike the kids in your family? Let, let me read to you about three boys and about their situation that prompted them to be in one of our children's homes. This is a 15-year-old boy. When my mom and my stepdad were together, my stepdad would always call her bad names, hit her, choke her. I was always scared, and I would want to try to help mom, but I was too scared. Can you imagine a kid living in an environment like that? Here's a boy, age 16. I have to make money so that we can eat at night. A meal was never guaranteed at home, so I started doing what I needed to do to eat. Imagine what that boy did because he needed to eat. A 14-year-old boy said, at 14, I started to jump into a gang life. I'm in foster care with a whole bunch of felonies, and I don't care if I live to see another day. See, that's real life. For some people, we need to be compassionate toward people who are in very difficult life circumstances. And I am a huge fan of the way we in the church have tried to minister to children in jeopardy with these children's homes all over the country and also even in many foreign countries. I really don't see any reason in the world why any couple that would want to adopt a child would have to pay the exorbitant fee that's involved in that. Why don't we do that as the church? If a couple is wanting to adopt a child, why can't we foot the bill as a church family. And if a family is choosing to be a 
foster family. And they want to bring kids into their home. Let's make it a point to encourage that. And let's make it a point to support them. And I'm not just talking about with words. Let's do everything we can to encourage help for hurting people. And then there's the widowed people. You knew that I would get there, right? Here's what one man wrote. The greatest fear I had during the earliest stages of my grief when my wife died was that I was going crazy. That I was losing all control over my thoughts and that I might make decisions harming me, my family, my friends. That included suicidal thoughts. One lady shared this with me. I struggled to fight the weight that I seem to always be carrying on my shoulders. This is harder than I ever dreamed or imagined that it would be. I'm sitting here crying my eyes out. I really thought I was beyond questioning and the intense hurt, but I feel like a knife has been thrust through my heart. Do you know there are people like this? who are struggling with really difficult life circumstances. I hope that we have developed a heart of compassion where we are touched when we become aware of that, those difficult life circumstances. And I hope that we're so touched and so moved by that that we make it a point of showing our faith. That we make it a point of making it obvious to them that we care. There are times that we have hurting people in our church families, and we don't even know it. We don't even have a level of fellowship, a depth of fellowship, where we're willing to share the fact that we're struggling with a difficult situation in our life. A lot of times it's because we're just ashamed. But a lot of times that shame is so unnecessary and unwarranted. Letting other people know that you have needs is okay because there isn't a single person sitting in this big room that's without need it's just a matter of degree and a matter of number I was in Dallas Texas and I was attending a Sunday evening worship service and I walked out of the room into the foyer and I saw this home interior on the wall and I thought, wow, that's it in a nutshell. That's living faith. That is really true religion. That is real faith. It's all about two things. Passion for God. I'm talking about an unparalleled passion for God. Loving him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And because we do that... We love our neighbor as ourself. We have passion for God and then compassion for people. And in a nutshell, that's what living our faith is all about. Often I'm hindered on my way. Burden so heavy I almost fall. Then I hear Jesus sweetly say, heaven will surely be worth it all. 
the end of our faith, there's the experience of heaven. I don't know what you may be going through in your life right now, but I do want you to know that we're going to sing a song of invitation and that if you are struggling in your life with something, there is compassion in this room. But it's hard to show compassion toward people if we don't know what they're going through. And if you need to share something that's going on in your life, because you need the prayers and support and wisdom and encouragement of others, we want you to feel free to respond. It's okay to not be okay. There's a lot of people in this room that are not okay. If you've not yet chosen to express your faith, confess it verbally and turn away from sin and be baptized into Christ. We're going to invite you to make that decision as well. Come with a heart full of passion for God and compassion for people every day. And let it start in God's church family while we stand and while we sing.